The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today, as we consider God's Word in the Gospel of John, we're at chapter 13, a familiar incident, a very graphic incident in the sense that it's pictorial. You can see with your eyes the lesson Jesus is giving here. It's not a complicated argument. It's a demonstration. We read John 13. I'll read verses 1 through 17 of God's Word. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And so if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's own holy word. When I think of examples I have heard or seen in the record of human behavior, a record of very praiseworthy humanitarian service of human beings to one another, not necessarily within Christianity, 
I think of something which happened for a number of years during the 1940s at the railroad depot of North Platte, Nebraska. This was one of Charles Kuralt's finest stories of his On the Road series, which was seen years ago. North Platte is an isolated town of about 20,000. If you looked at it on the map, you would see great open areas around it with very few other towns of any size. It looks like a no-account sort of a place. But its one claim to fame is that it was, and I believe still is, a major terminal for the Union Pacific Railroad. And in the 40s, of course, when train travel was much more the way to go, many trains, as many as 20 passenger trains, would pass through North Platte every day. Trains originating from places like New York and Chicago and Washington and Miami, Seattle, Los Angeles, trains full of service people headed for camps where they would be trained or maybe heading from training places to the coasts where they would embark for service overseas. The people of North Platte at one point early in the war thought they wanted to somehow demonstrate their support for people who were giving of themselves in military service and risking all for them and for their country. And so somehow the idea arose that there were six to ten troop trains, specifically soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines, coming through North Platte every day, and someone said, what if we just greeted them? And what if we greeted them not with a lot of speeches or literature or messages or banners, but simply with a little bit of refreshment, a cup of coffee, a cold drink, some cookies, a sandwich, to somehow show them we care about them? And so they started to do it, and they never stopped doing it the rest of the war. Every single troop train that passed through North Platte many times a day, if it stopped for 20 or 30 minutes, was greeted by a small organized army of volunteers who brought food, made sandwiches, made thousands of cookies. They made cakes, and they would call out, any soldier here got a birthday this week. He got the cake. People went on their ways. In those days before styrofoam, you carried the, the ceramic coffee cup with you to the next junction and left it there, and it made its way back to North Platte. Later on, at the Battle of the Bulge, at the sands of Iwo Jima, in many places in the war, men would stop and think about who they were fighting for and what they were fighting for. And one man would say to another, Have you ever been to North Platte, Nebraska? And the guy would brighten up and say, yeah, those are the greatest people in the whole world. As millions, literally by the time they were done, millions of soldiers were served with this simple kindness and simple courtesy. No, no message being sent other than we love you, we care about you, we're standing with you. The simple actions of these people spoke volumes that didn't need words to explain them. Well, that, I think, is what we have as we look in John 13 at the public phase of Jesus' ministry ending, as John describes it, 
because from here on, by the way, we have five chapters not found in the other three Gospels. We use the word, you may know the word synoptic. It's an odd scholar's word to describe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those synoptic Gospels do not contain the material of these next five chapters. This is focus on Jesus with his own, as John says in verse 1, with his disciples. All his speaking is to them, not to the crowds in general. And I do have to remind you, though, of a topic of discussion which the other Gospels report was going on as they headed into this last phase and they headed for the upper room. You might recall Luke 22 reports it. The subject of discussion was what? Of all things. Which of us is the greatest? Which one of us will sit closest to the king in his eternal kingdom? Which of us will have the most power and authority because we are great in some manner? That is what they were talking about on this night at this dinner when they came into this room. And you see what Jesus did. He was aware of what they were talking about. And in answer to it, he didn't lecture them. He didn't scold them. He got up and took off his outer robe, got a towel, got a basin of water, and did what a slave was supposed to have done, but nobody had done, coming into that dinner. You realize much of the time we don't even understand that our actions either have opened a door for our words to be heard, or perhaps our actions have closed the door for our words not to be heard. Let's consider this as Jesus is showing us something here today. All my points are are phrased as questions today as I try to summarize the material of this text. And the first I propose to you from the beginning of John 13 is the question, how can we ever comprehend the love of Christ? How can we comprehend the love of Christ? You see, what the passage begins by saying. Jesus loved his own disciples who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. The translators and interpreters see that several different ways. He loved them to the very last, that is, to the, to the last opportunity to love them, and he also loved them to the utmost, to the farthest extent, the most sacrificial way that he could love them. And yet here were Peter and his friends provoking the Lord saying, which of us is the greatest? You would think Jesus would have given up on these disciples and traded them in and said, couldn't I get another bunch who would be more malleable to be godly men than these? And yet we see here the love of God in Christ that knows no limit to persevere and carry out its goal of accomplishing what it sets out to do. And and that's the love he has for us. He loves us to the very limit, to the nth degree, we say, to the, to the utmost opportunity. John 6, verse 37 had Jesus say, He who comes to me, I will under no circumstances cast out. I'll never do it. No matter what you do to me, no matter how you ignore me, how you act ignorantly or foolishly in my presence, I won't stop loving you. This is the love of God in Christ. 
And I ask the question, how can we comprehend this? The answer really is we can't. But we can keep pondering and thinking and asking ourselves all our lives long, why would God love me? You see, that's the essential definition of one of his own. The one that Christ calls his own is a person who is marveling all the time over the love of God for me. Not ever saying, well, certainly if God loves anybody, it must be me. That person basically states his disqualification to be one of Christ's own. But the one who says, I can't comprehend this. I marvel over it. It's stupendous. It's amazing. I can't get into it to understand it. Why would he bother with me? This one is Christ's own. The one who constantly marvels at it. You see, the love of Christ for people who are lost and unlovely and unlovable is the very essence and marrow of the Christian gospel. And if your life is a self-centered life that says, well, I'm what I am and this is what I'm going to be and everybody better get out of my way so I can live where I am because God certainly has blessed me just the way I am and no need to change, doesn't have a concept. The gospel of the cross is not about our heavenly father sending his son hoping we, in love to him, would meet him halfway. It's about sending his son who went the entire way himself, all the way to us. God's love is one-way love that comes the whole distance to where we are in our misery and our selfishness. Now, it says here that he knew full well what his own were about, what they were talking about, what they were contesting among themselves. And so he stripped off his outer robe in the same way that he stripped off his godly glory and prerogatives when he came to earth to be born as a little human child, limited in so many ways, not not becoming any less God than he was before, but certainly setting aside his use of powers that he had and glory that he had. And here with a towel and basin of water, the preexistent son of the highest God who participated in the creation of the universe did what learned rabbis in their debates would have said and did say at that time was the labor of a Gentile slave, not a Hebrew slave. You see, a Hebrew slave was supposed to be too dignified to wash feet. Gentile slaves were allowed to wash feet, according to the rabbis. And do you share perhaps my shock in realizing that Jesus also handled the feet of Judas, who already was deciding to become the betrayer, probably already had the down payment of the pieces of silver in his pocket. He had not yet departed into the night of eternal loss, which will be the next thing we look at, verse 21 and following, when he said, one of you will betray me. And he concentrates on that subject. We'll God willing, have time to go into that. But he hasn't gone out yet. He's there. And it's a right assumption that Judas was there having his feet washed also. Along with Peter, along with Thomas the doubter, Judas the enemy had dried donkey dung washed off his feet. You really got filthy feet in the first century wearing sandals 
or going barefoot. Sometimes I watch my Amish friends in their barefoot ways, and I think, how do you ever get them clean? Well, you could wonder that all the more, because these people weren't walking on asphalt. They were walking on manure and dirt and everything you could think of all the time. And there was no slave at this particular gathering to wash it off. And Judas' feet were handled by Jesus the same as the others. There's no indication here that he got any different treatment, that the treatment towards him was was vindictive or spiteful or anything like that. In fact, I think I am accurate in interpreting that towards him the treatment was pity. Pity that this man had given his soul up to the enemy of God. If you think about serving someone who perhaps doesn't like you very much or doesn't seem to respond to you with respect the way you think they should, maybe a very difficult person at work who you just can't ever seem to get along with, What's your typical response to that person, a relative with whom you've had a a hard relationship? I know how I typically respond, and I'm certainly just a normal human being like you. I tend to avoid that person. I'm not naturally inclined to attack them, but I am naturally inclined to say, well, how little contact can I have? How can I just, you know, stand at a distance and make sure I'm known have to be in the conversation with that person. Here's Jesus with pity and compassion washing the feet of Judas, knowing everything that was going to happen. He certainly anticipates the advice of Paul toward an enemy in Romans 12, 20. Paul wrote, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now, those coals of fire, as Paul understood it, wasn't, didn't mean destruction. I hope he'll burn up. It meant conviction. You'll put in his life the question, why is this person doing this? And Judas, before he turned on his heel the final time and went out into the night later in this chapter, the night that never had a dawn for him, at least had occasion to ask, why is this man doing this? And then look at verse 3 here. Not only was this done in the presence of an enemy, but it was done in a knowledge, a comprehensive knowledge of everything that was going on. We read, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. He had this grand understanding of the big scheme of everything. He had come from the highest to the low place of earth. He was going back to the Father by a terrible road of suffering. But even in light of fulfilling all those great, tremendous things, this little incident had to happen, we're reading here. He had to serve his own and teach them this visible lesson. One aspect of the lesson certainly is to see that the person who has the most True prestige and authority is the one who doesn't need to flaunt it or prove it. 
Philippians 2, 6 says, being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to hold on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The one who was infinitely high could go infinitely low and not lose anything in the process. And so he has us left pondering, thinking, wondering, being amazed at how can we ever comprehend this love of God in Christ? But secondly, I'll take the little incident with Peter and put it into a question I hope with accuracy. It's especially focused in verse 10. As the interchange with Peter raises this question, how much of Christ's love do I need? Peter didn't understand this whole thing. He thought he had to show how humble he was to act offended that Jesus would wash his feet. Lord, you will not do this. I won't allow it. And Jesus said, if you won't allow it, then you don't belong to me. Well, you, you never saw anybody reverse tracks faster than Peter reversed there, did you? Lord, then not my feet, my hands. Throw the whole basin over me. He began to get it, at least. And later on, he did understand it. But this is the summary statement. As Jesus said, a person who had a bath needs only to wash his feet for his whole body is clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you is. Now, that might sound odd to you, but we think it can be explained in light of New Testament theology pretty easily. The bath that Jesus spoke about wasn't water from that basin. It was the whole idea of the work that he would do on his cross and in his resurrection, cleansing us from sin. It's what the theologian calls justification by God's grace through faith. That salvation act of trusting in Christ and being washed clean of all the awful, terrible, rotten things that would accuse us before God, taking them away separating us from them as far as the east is from the west. His death and his resurrection did that miraculous cleansing, that bath that he calls it here. And it's a bath that lasts. I had a book. We were having a book sale, some of you know, yesterday. And one of the books I sold, someone was chuckling over the title as I chuckled over it when I first saw it. The the book's title was Stop accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior over and over again. It's a very good little book about Christian assurance, telling people who ask Jesus into their heart 23 times that you don't need to do that, fearing that the first 22 weren't effective. When you are justified by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as an atonement for your sin before God, 1 John 1, 7 is applicable to you. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from sin and cleanses you forever. That's the bath. It has eternal effects. You don't have to do it every other Sunday. But you say, wait a minute, I still feel like I'm sinful. Congratulations. You belong with all the rest of us who have dirty feet from living life in this world. And Jesus is distinguishing here the difference between removing sin acquired along the way as a Christian believer and the difference between knowing the new birth that washes you eternally. 
When I lived for six years in the vicinity of Baltimore, we were always very conscious of the Chesapeake Bay. The media was talking all the time about the things that polluted the Chesapeake Bay. And you folks up here in Lancaster got notice from them down there in Baltimore. And they said, you know, a lot of the problems with the Chesapeake Bay are what the farmers are doing up north of us in Pennsylvania. Nitrogen and and all kinds of things going into the streams and creeks that feed into the watershed of the Chesapeake. And I remember one time, one sort of way they wanted to dramatize it, the fellow at the news station had a delicious Maryland crab cake that he was about to eat. And let me tell you, nobody knows how to make crab cakes like they make them in Baltimore. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania, you don't know what crab cakes are. Marylanders know. And this fellow was ready with a fork to bite into the crab cake. And he said, you know, as I'm eating this, I'm aware that that fertilizer from an Amish farm way up there in Pennsylvania ran into the Chesapeake and got into this crab that I'm about to eat. Ew. That didn't make the crab cake sound quite as appetizing to me. But it made a good point. Our lives live downstream from all kinds of pollutants. And we tramp around on all kinds of leaking sewage that get on our feet And if we do not live lives of regular confession of sin and lives that are cleansed by renewal in the power of the Word of God and in worship, and if we don't come regularly and say, Lord, forgive us our debts here. We've been waiting in the garbage of the world all week. And, you know, a a Christian, you may be washed for all eternity, but if you aren't regularly in God's Word and regularly in worship and regularly confessing, You're like a person who wears the same pair of socks for three weeks. People are going to stop sitting next to you. And you won't figure out why. Because you stink. The world has gotten all over you. There's a great verse in Hebrews 10, 14 that says, By one sacrifice, Christ made perfect forever. Perfect forever. Don't miss that, Christian. By one sacrifice, Christ made perfect forever. Now listen to the rest of it. Those who are being made holy. That's got it all right there. The bath is Christ's work on the cross and the resurrection. And you're perfect forever. But you're in a process of being made holy daily in your Christian life. You need your feet washed, is what Jesus was saying. Not in the literal way, but in the way of coming continually before the Lord and confessing your weakness. Well, a third concept taught in our text this morning, I'm putting in this question. Here's how I state it. How may we be communicators of Christ's love? You see, the statement of Jesus is here that what he did there, we're supposed to do. You should do to each other what I've done to you. All right. Are we Presbyterians missing out that we don't have once a month? John Light, march up here and take your shoes and socks off so I can wash your feet. No, John, stay put. Uh, Are we missing out that we don't do this? Is this a ritual he wants us to carry out and somehow symbolically repeat what's going on? Or is he talking about the service, the humility of putting ourselves in a low place before another person to serve their need with no gain for myself in the picture at all? To pursue not just 
the daily washing and confession of my own sin and dwelling in God's Word that is, by the way, Ephesians 5.26 says, we are washed by water through His Word. Just dwelling in the Word of God cleanses our lives. But it's more than that. He wants us to go on from that to give service to others in the name of Christ. And preferably something done, there's no gain involved for you. The other person can't look at you and say, well, I guess he's getting prestige for himself out of doing this for me. No, they would look at you and say, why in the world is he doing this for me? Just as we ask when we looked at Christ. You see, Jesus turned society's power ratings about leadership upside down. We think leaders are people who are fluent speakers. They can put forth great ideas. Maybe they can exercise a certain base of power to make other things or persuade other people to do things. But they don't come out and do the mundane. Of course, when they're running for office, you know, they stand at the factory gate with their sleeves rolled up like they're one of the ordinary Joes carrying a lunch bucket. But they don't really do the mundane things because they're leaders. Well, here's Jesus teaching us a whole new lesson of what leadership is servant leadership that stoops down in the pit where somebody lives, that doesn't only grieve and and give negative pronouncements when the society goes crazy and it's misunderstanding and it's delusion of sexuality, but it gets down next to your gay friend and forms a friendship and listens to that person and walks with that person to try to understand why is that person so deluded, so far from understanding what God made him or her to be. Because we're not just called to denounce people or to shame people. We're called to walk with people in service until we win the opportunity and the respect from them to hear what we have to say. Leaders find this hard, you see, because leaders like to walk up there in the stratosphere somewhere above everybody. You know, if a Hollywood celebrity or one of the rock stars of today, you could name 30 rock stars that are great today, I probably wouldn't recognize any of them. But the kind of person who would be stopped in his Jaguar on a highway in Hollywood and after going 40 miles over the speed limit would say to the officer, Don't you know who I am? Expecting that that would mean something. Can you picture Jesus ever asking for privileges by saying to someone, Don't you know who I am? He showed us who he was by coming from the highest to the lowest place, never using his deity to domineer, but only to serve. And he said, Look, you didn't come from where I do. You're not the Son of God as I am, but you've seen what I do now. The servant isn't greater than his Lord. I want you to do this too. Find some way to do this. Maybe you're asking me, well, tell me what it is I'm supposed to do. I can't. Because your circumstances are entirely individual. The person you need to serve is either in your family, at your place of work, in your neighborhood, maybe in your church, somebody that you need to come alongside without any motive that you're going to get something out of this 
and see the need that they have and help to meet it with your version of a towel and a basin. You know, this humility and personal initiative in serving other people is a prerequisite to most effective evangelism. People will often say, well, teach me evangelism. And what they want is a nifty little course that they would go away with, with a summary. Maybe you could fit it on a card that you could tuck in your Bible that says, here's five verses in sequence. And if you just walk somebody through these verses or these questions, you'll win them to the Lord. Well, I'm completely wary of that kind of approach to evangelism because I have learned that evangelism comes when through relationship that breeds respect and that causes another person to see the authenticity of your life, actually seeing something of Christ in the way you serve earns you the opportunity to speak the message about him. And you won't get to giving the message by leaving the first part out. Almost never. Almost never. The buttonhole somebody on the street with the, hey, buddy, do you know Jesus? Forget it. That's not evangelism. The relationship of respect and service comes first. And they might catch a glimpse of Jesus in you and become interested enough to hear you tell them who he is. I leave you with an old proverb that's not biblical, and you've heard it before. But this old proverb tells every Christian, always be seeking to preach the gospel of Christ wherever you go. Always be seeking to preach the gospel of Christ wherever you go. And when you cannot do it any other way, use words. May God bless you. Father, thank you for this image of your son on his knees, doing what wouldn't have been expected even from a Hebrew slave. How do we comprehend a Lord and Savior like this? Show us, Father, how we might serve someone, even one person, where it would be totally unexpected, and without gain for us, but it might give that person the first glimpse of Jesus they've ever seen. May you get the glory. Amen.